Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We have paperback Bibles for you underneath the chairs in front of you, so you can find one and open it to page 4. <clears throat> Resuming here our series, <clears throat> excuse me, on the book of Genesis. Uh, yes, I did watch the Super Bowl last Sunday, and watching the Super Bowl reminded me about the last time that we saw the Indianapolis Colts in the Super Bowl. It's been uh, 10 years now. Back in 2010, they played the New Orleans Saints, lost that game. And uh, it was just a couple years later, in 2012, that the Colts released their superstar quarterback, Peyton Manning. And Peyton had played 14 seasons with the Colts at that time. And uh, there were some who were wondering, maybe Peyton's done, maybe he's washed up, maybe he's finished. But it wasn't long before another team came along, the Denver Broncos, and they signed Peyton Manning, uh, brought him onto their team, and by the year 2016, the Denver Broncos were winning another Super Bowl with Peyton Manning leading the way. And it's kind of a, a beautiful story of what happens when somebody gets a second chance, an opportunity to start over. That was given to Peyton Manning, and he made the best of it. And I think we can all identify probably with a time when we longed for a second chance, for an opportunity to start over. Maybe you were granted that, maybe you weren't, but most of us find ourselves in a position, and maybe that's you today, you're really longing for a second chance. You feel like you've really messed up, you've screwed things up, you feel like it's over, but could there be a second chance for you? I want you to know that the Bible is filled with stories of second chances. Uh, think of Adam. We already saw Adam, how he was in the garden. He failed. He rebelled against God's sin, did exactly what God told him not to do, but God pursued him and came after him, gave him a second chance. Think of King David. Remember committing adultery with Bathsheba? And yet God sent Nathan to him to confront him and to draw David back to the Lord. Uh, how about Peter in the New Testament? Maybe one of the most uh, obvious uh, examples of a second chance. Peter denies Jesus publicly in front of other people as a leader of the church. And yet Jesus comes and restores him to leadership in the church. The Bible is a book of second chances. And what we're going to see here this morning in this passage that we're going to read is God giving the entire human race a second chance after the flood account that we have been reading about. So uh, we have a fairly lengthy passage here. I'm going to take us from 8 verse 1 through chapter 9 verse 7. Um, so I think the way I'll do this is uh, just read portions of it and then comment on it so we won't read it all in one setting. But I'm going to read chapter 8 verses 1 through 19 to start with. So why don't you go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. I won't have you stand for the other readings. We will eventually get to chapter 9, verse 7, but um, <clears throat> you might remember it's been a couple of weeks, I, I know, and we will be in Genesis here for the next four or five Sundays, God willing, but last time, remember, the flood came, that God saw the wickedness in man's heart, sent the flood in judgment upon humanity, but spared one family, Noah and his family, and the animals on the ark, 
And that's where we left the story. Noah and his family on the ark. The floodwaters came, destroyed every living thing on earth. And then chapter 8, verse 1, we pick up the narrative. It says this. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He, w- he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and, he did, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from uh, off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Our Father, we ask, Holy Spirit, come and please open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, is there an opportunity to start over? And this text tells us that certainly there is. And we're going to think about this in, in three portions. So based on what we have just read here, these first 19 verses of chapter 8, the first thing I want us to consider is this, that God remembers. God remembers. So as we get to chapter 8, verse 1, we get to a very kind of a pivotal pivotal turning point in the story of the flood. What we have seen from 6-5 up through the end of chapter 7, the account of the flood, is what we might call a kind of a decreation process, where God has sent the flood to destroy the earth. But now, chapter 8, verse 1, things shift, and what we see now is what we could call a recreation of the earth. So things are shifting. Things are changing here. The flood has come. 
the ark has been preserved, Noah and his family on the ark, the animals on the ark as well. And what we see here at the beginning of chapter 8 is that the rain has stopped, the flood waters are receding, and throughout these verses that I just read, there are several details here that ought to bring to your memory something that we have already read about in the book of Genesis. You kind of have to look carefully, read very carefully to see some details, but what you'll find here is that this chapter 8 is pointing our attention back to something that we've already read about. So I'm going to show you how this uh, is revealed. First of all, after the flood, just picture the scene. What do we have? The flood has covered the whole earth. What we have is an earth covered in water, right? It's a universal flood. Everything's covered. What does that remind you of? Does that bring to your mind anything that we've already read about in Genesis? Well, it should take you back to Genesis 1 verse 2 where it says the earth was void and darkness was over the face of the deep. That's how the world started, water covering the earth. And now after the flood, water covers the earth. But then we move on and we see <clears throat> that there is a wind that blows. You see that in verse 1. God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The Hebrew word for uh, wind is actually the same as the word for spirit. So can you think of a time that we've already read about in the book of Genesis where there was the spirit over the waters? Well, again, it takes us back to chapter 1, verse 2 where we read about the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. It goes on. Eventually what we see is land emerging from the water, right? So for uh, several verses here, we see a depiction of what is happening here. We see that the, the, the waters are abating, they are receding, it says in verse 2 and 3. And then at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And on this particular date, in verse 4, we find that uh, the waters are receding enough so that the ark can come to rest on a mountain. And at the end of verse 4, we see it's the mountains of Ararat. And so this is a reference to a mountain range. It's an it's a actually existing mountain range. It still exists today in Turkey, kind of near the border of Iran. And uh, Ararat is the highest peak in Turkey, so this is a, a real place. And just as we get very specific dates here in the narrative, letting us know that this is something that happened in history, so do we see that there are actual historical geographical places listed in the passage. Again, Moses telling us that this is something that really happened on this earth, not a fable, not a myth. But the ark comes to rest on the top of the mountains. Now, of course, there's a lot of people who have been searching for the ark and claiming to have found the ark. I'm not going to get into that right now, but the ark comes to rest on the mountain, and Noah realizes it might be time to get off this thing. And so he uh, begins to devise some ways to figure out if it's safe. And so the first thing he does is he sends out a raven <clears throat> in verse seven, a raven. And so it could be that the raven is perhaps a symbol of the old world. The raven is an unclean bird, black unclean bird, symbol, uh, symbolizing what has passed perhaps. Uh, the raven um, 
wanders over the earth, flies over the earth, and then Noah chooses to use a dove. And so now we have a change. We got a dove, a clean bird, a white bird, and uh, a dove is, is a symbol of, of peace and harmony and righteousness. It's, it's uh, symbolizing this kind of idea of a new beginning, a new start, uh, a new humanity, a new world in which peace might be able to reign. And so Noah sends out this dove. Well, the dove returns to him immediately. It says in verse 9, there's no place to set her foot, so there's no land, there's no trees for her. And so Noah knows it's not safe to get out of the ark. Wait seven days, he sends out the, the dove again. And then we see that the dove comes back with an olive leaf in verse 11. So it's like this is a good sign. Hope is increasing. A tree has now emerged from the water, an olive tree in particular, a freshly picked leaf of olive and that's brought back and so then Noah waits another seven days verse 12 sends out the dove and the dove does not return so therefore the, the dove has found a place to rest tree land or, or something just more indication that the waters are abating the waters are being pulled back and land is emerging so again does that remind you of anything Waters being pushed aside and land emerging. That should take us right back to chapter 1, verse 9, where we see the waters of the earth are gathered into their places, it says, and land, or dry land, appears. That's what it says, chapter 1, verse 9. The land emerging from the water. Well, it goes on. What's next? God commands Noah and his family, time to get off the ark, and so... Humanity then steps onto the dry ground along with all of the animal kingdom. And now we have human beings and animals inhabiting the dry land earth. What does that make you think of anything? Again, go back to chapter 1, verse 24, where it says all the living creatures were created by God on the earth. And then chapter 1, verse 27, God makes man and woman, male and female, and puts them on the earth. And then we even have Lastly, a command from God in verse um, 17, in verse 17, chapter 8, verse 17, he says, be fruitful and multiply, which is exactly the same command that God had given Adam in chapter 1, verse 28, the creation mandate. God gives the same command here that he gave back in chapter 1. Now, this might not be obvious upon the first reading of this text, but do you see these clues? Do you see the references? Do you see how chapter 8 is pointing us back to chapter 1 so that we can see that what God is doing is starting a recreation here after the decreation? He's starting over. And this man Noah is now emerging from the ark as kind of a new Adam, a new head of the human race so that God and humanity can start over. Decreation to recreation. That's the theme of this chapter 8. Now we might say, well, why is this all happening? What is kind of driving this? And we find that answer in chapter 1. I skipped over this, but uh, the very first verse says this. Beautiful verse, powerful verse, I love this verse. It's very simple, but look what it says. God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. 
that's so important because you've got to think that Noah was probably starting to worry if God had forgotten about him. God spoke to Noah, told Noah to get on the ark, but we don't have any record of God saying anything else to Noah while he was on the ark during this flood. And if you add up all the dates and the years here, it appears that Noah and his family and the animals were on the ark for about a year, hearing nothing from God. The door shut them in. They have no perspective on what's going on in the outside world. It's just them and this ark. They've done what God has said, and then God goes silent. Is God even mindful of us anymore? Has God forgotten? Has God found somebody else maybe more righteous than me? Maybe Noah was thinking and now he's doing something with him and he's forgotten about us and we're left on this ark forever? Did God forget? No. God remembered Noah. It's such a beautiful statement of God's faithfulness, of the fact that God always does what he says he will do. Remember back in chapter six, here's what God said to Noah. I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. I'm making a promise to you, Noah. I'm gonna do something with you, Noah. This is what God is remembering, his covenant promise. God's not remembering Noah because he's such a great guy, although the, world, the, the word does say that he was a righteous man. What God is doing is remembering his promise and he's always faithful to his covenant promises and this should come as an encouragement to any one of you who might feel forgotten in this world have you ever been in a place where you've just felt forgotten overlooked maybe growing up you had parents who made promises to you and they didn't come through they said they'd be there at your game and they weren't there over and over again and you felt forgotten have you ever felt forgotten by your spouse maybe a spouse that forgets it's valentine's day you ever felt forgotten? Forgotten by uh, <clears throat> a friend who said he was going to call, said she'd drop by, didn't? Maybe you're feeling forgotten in this world, in society. Maybe you're retired, you used to be somebody, now you feel like you're nobody. You feel like you're forgotten by the world. and Maybe you just feel like you're forgotten by God. He's not mindful of you. Look what it says in Isaiah 49, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet God says this, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You remember that story of Jesus on, on the cross? He's hanging on the cross between these, these two criminals and the, the thief kind of looks to Jesus and he says, remember me, Jesus. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus turns to him and says, I tell you today you are going to be with me in paradise. In other words, what Jesus is saying to that thief is, I'm not going to forget you. There's, what does that thief have to commend himself to Jesus? He's lived a life of criminality. And then he looks to Jesus in faith and says, remember me. And Jesus says, I will remember you. I will not forget you. And you will be with me in paradise. Think of the little amount of time that Jesus and this thief even had an opportunity to have a relationship, just a few minutes. And yet because he looked to Jesus in faith, Jesus said, I will not forget you. And you know, the same is true for you, friends. If you have looked to Jesus in faith, he will not forget you. The world might forget you, your mom and dad might forget you. Your 
spouse might forget you, your best friend might forget you, but Jesus will not forget you, just as he didn't forget Noah. So God remembers. That's the first thing we see. He remembers his covenant promise, and as a result of that promise, he um, starts over with creation. And now we go to the second thing, which is a promise that God makes, a, a different promise, another promise. God promises. So let me pick up where I left off in verse 20. I'm just going to read verses 20 to 22 here. Genesis 8, 20 to 22. All right, so Noah and his family, they've come off the ark. And then it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God promises. We've read here that Noah is a righteous man. What is it that a righteous man does? We've seen a number of things here about Noah. He he obeyed everything that God commanded him to do. He's waiting patiently on the ark, trusting God's word. But here's another thing a righteous man does. He worships. And this is the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark. (laughs) We figure he might be hungry, might want to explore some things maybe on the earth. No, first thing he does is he stops, he pauses, and he gives God. God the worship and the thanks that he deserves and so what he does is he builds this altar it says and he takes some of every clean animal and offers up this burnt offering on the uh, altar now maybe some of you noticed a a discrepancy in the reading particularly back in chapter 6 and 7 where it said in chapter 6, verse 19, that God commanded Noah to take two of every sort of animal. But then you get to chapter 7, verse 2, and God says take seven pairs of the animals. And so this is the kind of thing that the the skeptic kind of loves to pounce on. You know, oh, here's a contradiction in the Bible. See, God said two of every kind, but then he said seven. So which is it? Well... I mean, really, there's no contradiction, right? If you've got seven pairs, you do have at least two, right? So numerically, there's no contradiction there. God didn't say only two. The explanation for that apparent discrepancy is, is right here, what we're reading in verses 20 through 22. What God was intending is to say, I, w- I want you to have two of every sort. In other words, make sure that there's male and female of every sort so that these animals can reproduce, but I want you to take actually seven of each of them because the time's going to come when you're going to have to offer some sacrifices. And if you only take two of every sort and you come off and you sacrifice them, then there's no animals left of that particular species to reproduce and repopulate throughout the earth. It actually says in chapter 7, verse 2, it says that God tells him to take clean animals. Clean animals are acceptable for sacrifice. And you'll notice here in verse 20 that this is what Noah takes. He took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That's what accounts for this apparent discrepancy. God just says, I want you to take enough animals 
so that you can have two for the repopulation of the species, but so that you'll also have some for sacrifices and perhaps even for food. So no, no, no problem there. But here's what Noah does. He offers up these animals on the altar, offers up this burnt offering, and notice what God's response is to this offering. When the Lord smelled, verse 21, when he smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Remember, God, God has been angry at humanity, right? He noticed that there was wickedness in the hearts of every human being, and so that's why he sent the flood. He's been mad at sin. It's his wrath that has led to the flood. But now God smells this pleasing aroma. He smells the result of the sacrifice that Noah has offered. And what that means simply is that God has accepted this sacrifice. He has found it acceptable. And because of that, he makes a promise. And he says, I'm never again going to curse the world like I did in this flood. I'm never again going to destroy everything in my anger like I did in this flood. Now, of course, you might say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because, of course, there's been countless floods throughout human history since then. But what God is saying here is I'm never going to send a universal flood. I, I think that's one of the strong arguments for believing that this is a universal flood because if it were a local flood and God said I was never going to do a local flood again, that would suggest that God is misleading us because there's been plenty of local floods, but there's not been another universal flood. And I think that's what God is saying here. I'm never again going to judge humanity in this particular way. It's a promise he makes as a result of this sacrifice that Noah has offered. But notice also here in verse 21 what, what he says. He smelled the pleasing aroma, and then he says, I'm never again going to curse the ground. But then look at this. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Wait a minute. You mean man is still evil? This flood was sent. The judgment of God came down. And what happens? The sin problem remains. What we see here is that judgment does not get rid of the sin problem. Judgment does not change hearts only grace does friends only grace changes hearts judgment doesn't do it the same problem that went on the ark came out of the ark that's what michael williams says while the ark delivers noah and his family from the judgment of the flood the root disease that brought on the flood was also a passenger on the ark that's their sinful human hearts and when the boat docks there remains a point of continuity between the decreation and recreation before the, before the flood and after the flood and the point of continuity is the fallen human heart. The sin problem has not been done away with. Judgment does not change hearts. Grace does. Now this doesn't mean that we never exercise judgment. Criminals need to be judged. Parents need to rebuke children. There will be a final judgment at the end of the age. We, we know that. So this doesn't mean that we should never practice judgment. It's just saying that judgment is not the way people are transformed. As Pastor Brian preached to us last week, it's not through judgment, it's through grace. And the picture of grace we see is developed here further as we see um, what has happened in God's heart as a result of this sacrifice. Remember, God is angry, a sacrifice is 
offered, and then God's anger is turned away. You might know that there is a theological word for that. It's called propitiation. It's to turn away the wrath of God. That's what's happening here. God smells the aroma of Noah's sacrifice and it appeases him so that his anger against humanity is turned away and now he looks at humanity with favor even though they continue to be a sinful humanity. That's propitiation. The problem here though is what Hebrews tells us later in chapter 10 is that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. So a greater sacrifice is needed to fix the problem that persisted on the ark and that's in the coming of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman finally comes, and we'll find New Testament passages like this. First John, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 3, same thing. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is what Jesus did on the cross for us. He didn't just buy us back, which is a wonderful thing. He redeemed us, yes. He didn't just justify us, that is, make us not guilty before his law. That's a beautiful thing too. But he also propitiated the Father. That is, the sacrifice of Jesus turned away God's wrath and anger that we rightfully deserve. So we can know now there's no condemnation for us. His anger, his wrath has been turned away by what Jesus has done for us. And we get a picture of this here in the end of Genesis chapter 8. Here's what people will often do when they think about starting over, when they think about getting a second chance. Very often they'll say things like this. After having you know, made a mess of their lives, maybe they've burned bridges, they've squandered opportunities, they've alienated loved ones, and... So they'll say, I want to start again. And then they'll begin to make promises. And they'll say, I'm going to try harder now. I'm going to do better now. I'm going to be more committed. I'm going to make promises. I'm not going to do any of those things that I used to do. I know I screwed up, but I'm going to make it right. And you know what? That approach almost always leads to shame and guilt because what you find is that you can't fulfill your promises. You want to try harder? but you find that there are some days when you can't try harder. You want to do better, and you find that there are some days that you don't do better. And you fall back under shame and condemnation. The key to starting over in life is not to start with your promises for what you're going to do for God, but to accept the sacrifice that God has made for you. This is what Noah did. This is his start. The new earth is beginning now. There's a recreation, and the very first thing Noah does is offer a sacrifice. And if you want to start over, the first thing for you to do is accept the sacrifice that God has made for you in Jesus. That doesn't end in shame and condemnation. That always ends, starts and ends with grace and mercy. And it gives you, friends, not just a second chance, but a third chance and a fourth chance, and a fifth chance, and a sixth chance, and a seventh chance, because what the scriptures tell us is that where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. And that if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. For all of God's children, we know what it's like to need to start over repeatedly. (laughs) 
We don't need just a second chance. We need a lot more than that. But the grace of God grants that to us when we look to him through his sacrifice as opposed to our promises for moral renovation. So we see a great promise of God here. And then the last thing we see is a command from God in verses 1 through 7, chapter 9. So let me pick up there and read these last seven verses. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning. For the life of man, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. So, God's command. Here's what we see as part of this process of starting over is, is a command is given, and the command that's given is what we call the creation mandate. And so you've heard me talking about the creation mandate. I think it's instructive that we see it repeated three times here. It was in chapter 8, verse 17. But now we see it in chapter 9, verse 1, and chapter 9, verse 7. What is the creation mandate? It first appeared to us, chapter 1, verse 28. It's when God said, take dominion over the earth and multiply and be fruitful and fill the earth. And so God repeats this to Noah. It's like God is saying to Noah, Noah, I know that sin still remains in people's hearts. It's a wicked world, but Noah, I don't want you fleeing from the world. I want you getting busy in the world. Get busy. Get off the ark and get to work. It's like, I I want you to make some gardens and and grow food so that you can eat it. I I want you to invent things like like the wheel and the printing press and the automobile and and snowblowers and and, and smartphones. Invent things. Get busy. Create culture. Create beautiful paintings. Make beautiful music. Make the world a better place. No, that's that's basically the creation mandate. Make the world a better place by creating and advancing in culture. And if you ever wonder how important that is and why I keep mentioning it, it is because it's repeated so often in the scriptures. Three times it's repeated in our passage here. And not only that, but it's the very first command that God gives to Noah as he gets off the ark. And that's interesting, isn't it? God doesn't command him to worship him, although that's what Noah did. God's first command is this creation mandate. Now, there are a couple of changes, however, uh, a couple of adjustments with some uh, ethical implications for us regarding this creation mandate. And one of the adjustments has to do with the relationship with animals. And so what we find in verse 2 is that the harmony that used to exist between man and the animals is not there anymore. Instead, it says that Uh, regarding the animals that that they're going to live in fear and dread uh, of of mankind. 
So there's not this harmonious relationship anymore. I mean, this is why when you see a deer in the woods, it always runs away from you immediately. It fears you. It dreads you. And that characterizes all the, the entire animal kingdom. Um, and then God says in verse 3 that these animals are going to be uh, food for you. Now, that wasn't indicated in chapter 1. Um, man was given the right to eat of the, the plants, but not the animals. And so now God says you are able to eat of the animals uh, if you so desire. And so what we see is that God is giving permission to humankind to be carnivores, to be meat eaters, to not have to be vegetarian. Uh, here we have a, a, a clear description in Scripture that eating meat is morally permissible. Now, there are other things to consider. I mean, you might want to consider how that affects your health, of course. Uh, we should consider uh, the treatment of animals. We, we always want that to be done in, in a kind way. Uh, but the bottom line here is there's no biblical mandate to be a vegetarian. <laughs> and it's okay. <clears throat> it's okay to eat meat. <clears throat> but the second thing we see has to do with uh, relationship with people. Because along with this creation mandate, which is be fruitful and multiply, that is a command to produce life, there's also a prohibition against taking life. And you see that in verse 6, where God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is the probably most foundational, instructive passage on this topic of capital punishment what this is saying here verse 6 is is simply this if if somebody takes somebody else's life if one person kills another person sheds his blood what makes that so morally reprehensible is that you're killing a person who is made in the image of God and so the implication is that by killing one person what you're doing is kind of seeking in an implicit way to kill God it's an attack on God because you're attacking an image bearer of God. <clears throat> and so the proper response to that, according to verse 6, is that that person's blood should be shed. The person committing the murder should himself or herself lose his or her life. That the proper penalty for one who takes a person's life is for that person's life to be taken. And notice the phrase in the first half of chapter 6 is, by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, this is not just waiting for God to bring this penalty down upon the murderer. It should happen by man. Human beings are responsible to enforce this penalty, is what the passage seems to be saying. And so, <clears throat> there are, uh, I know, many differences of opinion about capital punishment and how it's administered. Uh, clearly we see here in, in the scriptures that there is a, a solid precedent telling us that capital punishment is permissible. Now, of course, we want to make sure that it is enforced justly. <laughs> and, and that raises all sorts of questions about how that should be done. And if it's not enforced justly, it should probably not be practiced. Um, but nonetheless, we have a clear example of how it is permissible. And um, so, I mean, that's a, another sermon in itself talking about that, but I, I give brief mention it, to it because here it is in the text. So, um, <clears throat> that gets us through the text. So what we have here, we got Noah coming out of the ark. He's the, the new head of the human race. He's, uh, 
He's a new Adam. We, we might call him a second Adam, but what we're seeing here is that he is not the solution, friends. He, he, he is not the seed of the woman. He's not the promised Messiah. The fallenness of the world continues, and what we need is um, not, um, not just a second Adam. We need a last Adam. You know, Jesus has never really called a second Adam. I think I've called him a second Adam before, but he's not called a second Adam. He's called the last Adam. Noah is a second Adam. He's a kind of an Adam, but Jesus is the last Adam. He's the one who finally comes to undo all the problems that Adam created. He's the one who walked the earth and broke the curse. And friends, he's coming again. And when he comes again, he's not coming to destroy the earth. He is coming instead to make it new and to make it a home of righteousness for all love him and trust in him. And so we're going to close by singing Creation Sings and there's a wonderful stanza here in this song where we're going to sing, when he renews land and sky, all heaven will sing and earth will reply with one resplendent theme, the glory of our God and King. So let's pray and prepare our hearts to sing in response. Uh, Lord, your word is the truth and you sanctify us by the truth and we thank you for that and we thank you for your grace that shines through all the pages of your word, Lord. We thank you that you, through Jesus, have propitiated for our sins, having turned away your wrath for us, making us your children by grace so that we can live confidently knowing there is no condemnation for us. And we are grateful for that. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.